reach young adult ministry sermons online from Tuesday, January 26, 2021 by Philip Jackson, pastor to young adults at Evergreen Church, entitled Unity is a Mindset, Not Just a Project, from Philippians 4, 8 through 9. We are in a series of lessons about unity. This is the year of unity for us uh, at REACH. And um, what that means is looking at how each of us have been uniquely gifted and put together on purpose, not just to serve, but, um, but also to see how we can tangibly see God move in our lives. Like there is a, um, it's a real thing for us to, to, to want to be valued, right? It's a, it's a central human characteristic that uh, when, all, when my life is over, I want to have mattered, I don't want to just have just lived and then died. I want to, uh, we, we, won't, we won't say this out loud. I'll just say it. When I die, I want there to be a giant like vacuum when I'm, when I'm gone. I want, I want to have such an impact on people's lives that when I, when I do die, when I go see Jesus, that like I want that loss to be profound. I'll just be honest with you. Because um, I want to have mattered. I want to have contributed to, to people's lives, and I want to be missed. And um, you know, and I think that 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 need is in all of us. The idea that when we're seen, we're seen, and that we're not just another body. And um, I think that comes from from the elemental part of how God made us, um, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and that He made us on purpose for a purpose. And um, what that looks like for us, though, how we get there is written in God's word about how, how do we go from um, trying to figure out who we are to being confident in who we are and to not try to pretend to be a bunch of things that we're not to try to chase value. And uh, as we look at, at unity this year, I want you to be thinking about how have I been uniquely gifted and not... Spiritual gifts are not uh, a gift that God has given us. It's a way that he has gifted us to his body, to his church. And so the gift isn't actually our ability to teach or to help or to serve or to do these types of things. Our gift is that God allows us to serve in his, in his church, in his body. And in, in doing that, we get to create value. We get to see God move. We get to experience real um, value and to have mattered that um, it's like the old saying that, that you might be the only Jesus that some people see. I love that how God has, has invited us to be a part of what he's doing. And um, so we spent the last several weeks looking in Philippians about unity and what that looks like for us, that we're supposed to walk worthy of the calling of Christ, worthy of the gospel, that we have a responsibility to, um, to walk as if we carry his name with us, and that's important. We've looked at how um, we have all been called to a standard, and that if there is division within us, that means that someone's not walking with Jesus. And so we have to make sure that we call that out. It's a warning light for our community. Um, tonight we're going to look at, like, what does it look, what does it really mean to be a person who's intentional about unity? Like, what does that actually tangibly look like? Like, I'm all about us being united and 
as terrible as the world as the world seems right now, as everybody's divided, what does it mean for me to practically put unity into practice? So we're going to look at that. Turn with your turn your Bibles over to Philippians chapter four. Now I've intentionally skipped over the first several verses of chapter four because I preached a, a lesson on that last summer. Um, so if you guys remember my testimony about my brother passing away back in June of last year, uh, we talked about these verses. And so we're going to read the first uh, nine verses of chapter four. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the first uh, seven verses, but we need to read them for context. So um, a lot of believers, you know, they're going to acknowledge the importance of unity in the church and in their personal lives, but what does it practically look like to be a living unifier? Let's just get this thing kicked off, okay? So we're going to look at the mindset of unity tonight. That's our subject. Starting in verse 2 of chapter 4, Paul says, I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, let me pause right there. So this is kind of our setup for what we're going to talk about tonight. He's saying that the process is simple, right? He's not saying just come to God and ask him for what you want. When we come to God and uh, the first thing that we want to talk about is us, who's the subject of the conversation? It's us, right? So where we start is we start with right here in, uh, in verse... Six, he says, don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition. What he's talking about, the, the word here that he uses for petition, this is literally like requesting an audience with the king. So as a child of heaven, as, as, a, as a son and a daughter of heaven, we have the unique privilege of being able to walk boldly into the throne room of grace. That means that it's as, it is a comfortable place for us. It's not a place to cower or to be afraid. It is a place where we feel at home. So he's saying we start with asking for an audience with God. And so we go from there. So he says, um, he says, once we've done that, we can properly see who we are and who God is. And that's why he says, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And look at verse seven. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Notice that whenever we go into God's presence, he produces something in us. He produces peace. I used to believe that, that grief came in waves. I realize now that that's not a biblical, that's not a biblical principle. Grief doesn't come in waves. If you go back and you read Romans chapter 8, grief is the baseline for all of life. In fact, Romans tells us that, that all of the creation groans under the weight of sin, that there is this constant churn of anxiety and depression and anger and fear. But at the end of that passage of Scripture, Paul gives us a promise, and he says, but God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That means that in spite of that baseline of fear and, and anger and despair, God provides something that gives us a down payment on heaven, and that's his peace. One of the fruits of the Spirit is peace, right? So he's saying that the peace of God actually guards your heart and your mind. It guards your internal seat of emotions. It also guards the way that you think about life. So God helps us cope is not the right word. 
God helps us thrive in the midst of this environment. Okay, so using that as our backdrop, as our context, let's look at these next two verses. He actually gives us some practical application here. Verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So one of the things I love about Paul is that he loves to make lists. I'm a list person. I love lists because it helps me stay on track. I am so distracted all the time that I cannot focus if I don't have a list, right? Krista gets me because it's like, we can go through and knock this thing out. Sam knows this too, that I'm all about the lists. Um, And one of the things I love about Paul is he gives us lists. So if you're studying God's word, something that's really cool, there's a resource called Blue Letter Bible. Okay, Blue Letter Bible is an app on your phone. They also have a website. And you can actually look up a passage, you click on the verse, and you can actually go through and select individual words and see what they mean in context. It's the coolest thing ever. So anytime that you're studying God's word, if you don't have the Blue Letter Bible app on your phone, you need to download it. In fact, do it right now if you don't have it. Blue Letter Bible. Okay, um, this is such a great tool because when you're, when you're reading Paul's letters, he loves to make these lists. And so it's like, think about this, right? So if you take a photograph, a digital photograph, you zoom in to the smallest piece, right? You have little pixels, right? And so when you zoom out all those little bitty pixels, they give you the picture. When you think about Paul's words and what he writes in his letters, he's giving you different individual data points to track what he's talking about. So what we do is we, if we zoom in on those individual things and we see, okay, well, this one means this, this one means this, this one means this, this one means this. What we do is we begin to explore those individual ideas and then we, then we zoom out. It's like, okay, hold on a second. Let's look at the whole picture. Now all of a sudden the Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So this is pretty cool. So we're gonna do that tonight. So check this out. We're gonna start with the mind of a unifier. Somebody who is, who is training themselves, okay? So Paul gives us a roadmap here of how we actually get to the destination of peace. So check this out. The first thing he points out, he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true. So what he's saying here, this word particularly, uh, it means what is con- unconcealed or out in the open is true. These are absolute proven facts. So he says, whatever is ironclad, whatever we know to be solid and true, This is one of the things that we focus on. We live in a world that's full of falsehoods. We live in a world that is full of lies. People are trying to sell you stuff because they want your money or they want your attention. And so what they'll do is they'll say anything to get it. They'll do that in the form of someone half clothed on Instagram or on TikTok. They'll do that through promising you money. They'll do that through all different kinds of things to grab your attention. So to a mature believer in Christ, if we're going to have peace, if we're going to understand how to be a unifier, we've got to focus on what is true. I can't tell you how many times in our house that me and the girls are talking and there's all kinds of things going on in the world and all kinds of things happening in their lives that we have to say, no, we are going to live by what's true. What is true? And there actually is something that is true that's ironclad that's been proven. And that's this book. So for us, if, if we expect to live and have peace. If we don't apply ourselves to God's word, we will not have peace. You can't have peace in your life without God's word. 
You may like the idea of God's word. You may have a lot of Bible stories in your head, but if you don't know the word, you will never have peace. That anxiety that you feel, that fear that you feel, that pride that you feel, all of those things come from a disconnection from God's word. We have to focus on what is true because what is true is the only thing that's not movable. Jesus actually tells us a story in Matthew chapter four where he says the wise man builds his house on the rock. And the rock is God's commandments because God has revealed himself to us in real tangible ways. And if we refuse to live that way, what are we doing? We're building our lives on the sand. So when the waves of life come, when the hardship of life comes, guess what? We have nothing solid to stand on. And so James talks about this as a double-minded person that's, that's tossed back and forth by the waves or the wind. You're someone who prays for God to help you and then you go try to fix it yourself. You're not living by what's true, something that's solid. And then he says, but not just what's true, something that's honorable. So these are actions that somebody uh, takes and they're lived out as they're, as they're applying God's truth in their life. This word here means to be greatly respected and honored. So just like Paul called the church at Philippi to, to look at him, to examine him, he says, I want you to focus on things that are honorable. He's calling them to think about, to dwell on, and to, and to consider the actions of others that live out truth. He's saying you focus on what is honorable because we're supposed to walk according to a standard. That means that we are responsible to live worthy of the gospel. Not only do we to focus on what's true, but we focus on things that are going to bring honor something that's going to build others up, live in a way that's worth being imitated. He's saying, focus on what is true, focus on what's honorable, and then he goes to just. This means to be upright, righteous, virtuous, keeping the commands of God. See, there's a respect for the obedience of God's laws. So it's not just about living by the truth. It's not just about being honorable. It's about living in a way that understands that a right decision is, is the way that we need to live, no matter what. This is where we get our word justice. That to live a godly life that is rightly dividing the word of truth, to, Paul, to borrow the words that Paul wrote to Timothy, we have to be just, focus on what is right. Not what is right to me, not what is my truth, not what is your truth, not what is their truth. That is not a biblical concept. We were watching Spider-Man the other day and there's this scene where Zendaya is like, well, so-and-so is not here and he can't tell us his truth. And so, you know, that's just your truth and we don't really know if that's true or not. And like, there's this whole dialogue back and forth about this ubiquitous, like fluid truth is just kind of this thing that can just, it's just like opinion. What Paul's saying is that not only are we supposed to live by what's true, but we're supposed to live by what's just. This is true. This is honorable. This is just. In other words, there are firm things to believe in. There are firm things to set our minds on. There are, there are going to be moments in your life when you're going to have to choose to live by what is just, and it's going to cost you relationships. You are going to have to vote certain ways. You're going to have to take certain positions in political matters. You're going to have to offend people because you have to live by what is true and just. It is not right to kill an unborn baby in the womb. That is not just. There are things that our culture just dismisses as your truth and my truth, but the reality is that we have to be people who understand who we are 
And that starts with a mature understanding, having a respect for the obedience of God's word. Then he moves on to purity. Now, purity here. This is, this is a life that's pure from every fault, an immaculate life. This is a lifestyle that seeks to be pure from sin. The old school word here is sanctification. It's the idea that I have been, I was one way, and now I'm going to set it apart. I'm going to set my life apart and be dedicated to something else. Okay, so me and Lindsay have an emergency fund for emergencies, right? That money has been set aside for what? Emergencies, right? So if we're, if we're done at church or we're done whatever, it's like, you know what, let's swing by Brahms and grab a milkshake. Are we going to dip into our emergency fund? No. No, we're not. No, we're not. We're not going to do that. Why? Because it's been set aside for a purpose, we have been set aside for a purpose, right? That God has saved us. He has, he has paid for us through the blood of Jesus. And as a result, what that means is that he has taken us and he has set us apart. That means that we are called to live pure. The world is going to look at you and say, you're arrogant and proud. You are a goody two-shoes. You're up on your, your white horse in your ivory tower. Look at you looking down on all of us little people with your, with your holiness, but the truth is that we are called to live pure lives. There, there's this idea that somehow the Christians don't do certain things because we are better than other people. That's not true. The truth, according to God's word, is that what is around me, what I allow in my life, the movies I watch, the music I listen to, the things that I do for fun, that affects my heart. It affects my soul. It changes the culture of my life. And so Christians don't do certain things, not because they're better than other people, but they do them because they don't do them because we have an expectation to be set apart. We know that sin is dangerous. We're not going to be playing around with dynamite, wondering what happens when it goes off. Sin is poison. And so we, we protect our lives with purity because we understand that sin is corrupting. It'll kill us. And this idea that, okay, I punched my ticket and I'm going to heaven, everything's good. The truth is that I may be saved, I may be a child of heaven, but if I continue to live in sin, you know what? I'm going to be miserable and it's going to hurt me. Sin affects you in all different parts of who you are, your body, your soul, and your spirit. Your spirit may be safe, but your body and your soul can still be corrupted. Galatians tells us in chapter 5 that we live under the constant threat of sin because it poisons us from the inside out. Chapter six goes on to say that don't be deceived. In other words, don't be dumb. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows in their heart, they will also reap. If they sow into the flesh, if they feed their flesh, they will reap fleshly fruit. But if they sow into the spirit, they'll of the spirit reap, reap eternal life. And then he says this, he says, so, comma, let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due time, we will bear fruit if we do not lose heart. This idea that we are called to live pure is important. Not because we are better than anyone, but because we understand that, that sin is corrupting. It kills us. Paul's calling us to put our minds on what is, what is not sinful or degrading. Focus yourself, right? If you aim for something, you're going to hit it. If you aim for a godly life, guess what you're going to get? A godly life. If you aim for a life that is totally devoid of anything godly, if you avoid his truth, you avoid his word, and you live your life the way that you want, guess what you're going to hit? 
an ungodly life. You're going to hit what you aim at. It's just that simple. Think about this for a second. When this is over, you're going to get in your car, right? You're going to start the engine, and you're going to back up, and you're going to get on the road. You are going to drive intentionally. Am I right? Make sure you stay on the road. Make sure you stay in your lane. Make sure you don't hit something, hopefully. Right? You're going to drive intentionally. Why is it that with our lives, we get in the, the metaphorical car of our life, we start the engine, put it in drive, mash on the gas pedal, we just kind of let go of the steering wheel. And it's like, wow, oh, everything's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I'll get there, you know, I'm just, I'm just living in the moment. Why do we do that? Paul's telling us to focus ourselves, live on purpose. Don't just wing it. Satan's hunting. Sin is corrupting and it's poison. He's telling us to focus on these things, to, to, to put our mind on these things. He moves on to say, what is lovely? I love that. What is lovely? This is things that are acceptable and pleasing. What's interesting is this word is actually a combination of two words in the Greek. This is the only time in the Bible that this word is actually used. It's a combination of pros and phileo. In other words, something that is leaning towards brotherly love. Something that is, that is drawn to, it's pursuing relationship. Paul's telling us to dwell in the things that will cultivate sincere love for others. He says the things that are lovely, these aren't just nice things. We're not, he's, a, he's not saying just dwell on unicorns and butterflies and rainbows. He's saying dwell on the things that are truly lovely. Like godly friendships. People that are going to grow and they're going to push you towards Jesus. Focus on these things. Focus on being a, having the eyes of a shepherd to see the value in other people and build them up. Look at what is true and what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, and what is lovely. And then he moves on to commendable. This is something that is, uh, it means to sound, that something that sounds well. Uttering words of a good omen, speaking um, life to people. I love Proverbs 18.21. It says this. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Your words matter. What is commendable is something that is going to build other people up. It is something that is worth imitating. We should be mindful of speaking in a kind way, no matter what kind of a situation we're in. Paul is saying, be nice. Just be nice. Be kind. Fruit of the Spirit is kindness. We have a responsibility to set our minds on being kind. That means that, that, that those you have, a, have an opportunity to make a conscious decision when people hurt you to say, you know what? I'm going to be kind. Why? Because I'm going to live by what's true. And God's truth, his word, says that I'm supposed to speak with kindness. He says, he says a couple of verses before this, let your gentleness be known to all in verse five. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He's saying Jesus is coming back. How awkward would it be if Jesus shows up and you're in the middle of a shouting match with your mom or with your siblings or with your dad, with your, with your significant other? He says, let your gentleness be known to all people. 
Why? Because Jesus can arrive at any second. Be kind. Be commendable. That's what James talks about, about, about being slow to speak, but quick to listen. And slow to wrath. Because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We're called to be commendable. And then he moves on to this. I love this. He says, what is, he, he, he breaks for a second. He, it's almost like in verse eight, he's listing all these things, what is pure, what is just, what is honorable, what is commendable. And then he like interjects himself. And he's like, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, in other words, okay, I've listed all these little things. Now I'm just going to go big picture. He says, if there's any moral excellence, what he's talking about here is he's describing the purity of God. He says, if you are children of heaven, if you are daughters and sisters of Jesus, if you are sons of heaven, he says, what is morally excellent? He's saying, think about the pureness of God. Forget all the minute details. Be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. Be sanctified, set apart. He's saying, remember who you represent. Remember who you belong to. Walk worthy of the gospel. If there's any moral excellence, these terms highlight God's power and excellence. He's calling us to think on who God is and to recognize that he is morally excellent and great. In other words, he says, when you get upset, think about God's perfection. I've been thinking about this, about uh, confessing prayer a lot lately confessing sin, I mean. And forgive me if I've told you this already, uh, but it's just been on my mind a lot for the last couple of weeks. And there, it, it seems like I grew up in the church, and so it seems like there's a theme with people in the church that, like, when, when you're praying to God, I'm, I was told when I was little, well, you need to confess your sin first, right? Because God's not going to hear you if you've got to confess sin, which I realize now that's not true. Because if that was true, how could, how could I be saved in the first place? The scripture says that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. It says that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. But here's what I realized, that there's a small little, um, little bit of poison in that statement. If I, if, if I come to you and um, all, first thing I want to talk about out of the gate is all of the ways that I shouldn't be your friend and I shouldn't have a relationship with you. Who's the subject of the conversation? Me, right? So when I petition the Lord, when I go to him, when prayer and petition, like he says earlier in this chapter, and the first thing I want to talk about is me, I'm focusing on me. But here's what's amazing about that, is that if I do that, I never seem to get to God's goodness. I never seem to get to his mercy or his grace or his compassion. But instead, what if, in the words of James, I submit to God first, and then I resist the devil. And following the play-by-play, he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. That's the first step. So what if, what if instead of saying, God, reveal, my, reveal the sin inside of me, instead, instead of that being the first thing I want to talk about, I say, God, reveal yourself to me. To dwell on God's perfection. God, show me who you are. So guess who now is the subject of my prayer? He is. And guess what's amazing? Is that if I focus on God first and I see his purity and his grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness and his gentleness and his self-control, 
all of a sudden, if I think about him, as soon as I come up in my mind, I know exactly what's wrong with me. But he's the primary focus of what I want to talk about. And guess what? When I think about all these things, it passes through the filter of love and grace and mercy and kindness and gentleness. If that's the case, then Lamentations 3 is pure because it says that his mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. It says that he doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. That's amazing to me. That if I dwell in the pureness of God and the greatness of God first, my sin tends to take care of itself. But if I focus on my sin first, what happens is I walk away from my prayer completely self-absorbed. And all I can think about is all the ways that I'm not lovable. God is pure and he's kind and he's good. We focus on what is right, what is pure and perfect. Look at this next thing he says. He says, looking at what is praiseworthy. This is something that's worthy of recognition, approval, and distinction as something that's valuable. This term refers to thinking about things that will bring praise to God. Things that are worth talking about. When was the last time that you made a conscious decision, premeditated thought, you know what, I'm going to do that because it's going to bring praise to God. You know what, I'm not going to do this out of obligation. What if I premeditatedly worship God? For instance, what if on Sunday morning you get up and there's that one person that they're an EGR, right? The extra grace required. <laughs> what if you said, when you're getting ready for church, you write that person's name on a post-it note and you put it on your mirror. What if you said, you know what? I'm going to live by what's true and I'm going to speak life and I'm going to do something that's praiseworthy for that person and I'm not going to tell a soul about it. I'm going to do it on purpose. I'm going to dwell on what is praiseworthy. I'm going to think about ways that I can praise Jesus in the quiet of my service. That I have gone out of my way to think. You get a bonus at work. What if you, what if you had this premeditated idea that, you know what? I would love to just give money away to somebody who needs it. Or I know somebody would lo- what really needs to be part of our community. And so I'm going to go ahead and I'm, I'm going to put money down to pay for somebody's trip to go to Utah. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to tell anybody about it. How amazing would that be? To think ahead about what is praiseworthy. So that at the end of your life, when you see Jesus, he says, well done. My good and faithful servant. That is praiseworthy. I love that. Because you displayed my heart on purpose. It wasn't accidental. I didn't have to twist your arm to do it. You sought out ways to bring me praise. That's incredible. He says, he says to dwell on what is praiseworthy. We should look for ways and have make conscious effort to look for ways that we can bring God glory in how we live. It may be something like, you know what? I'm going to cancel my Netflix account because there's just garbage on there. Or maybe I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to delete social media. I know many of you have done that. It's like, you know what, I'm just going to just cut it out. 
ways that you intentionally live that's pra- that are praiseworthy. Okay, check this out. This is the cool thing here. He says, dwell on these things. So we've talked about all these individual data points, right? He says, dwell on these things. The way that this is described, actually, in the original language, is actually not just to think about something or even to meditate on it. I mean, it does kind of mean meditate, but the original language actually implies um, like a mathematician doing a complicated problem, math problem. So there's this, uh, there's this principle called the infinity principle. Sam, Sam introduced me to this idea, okay? So how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, right? Okay, so <clears throat> when we look at this comprehensive list, it's like, oh my gosh, how am I gonna do all these things? This is ridiculous. But what Paul's saying here is dwell on these things. He's saying, like a mathematician, I want you to take bite-sized pieces. Okay, today I'm gonna focus on what is praiseworthy. Okay, today I'm gonna focus on what is just. Okay, today I'm gonna focus on what is true, what is honorable, what is morally excellent. He says, dwell on these things, chew, them, chew on them, like a cow chewing their cud, right? I'm gonna take a little bit up and I'm gonna, I'm gonna work, work on it in one day. And then you know what? The next day I'm gonna pull something up, else up and I'm gonna chew on it. Or I'm gonna pick something else and chew up on it. So think about this. We use the term quiet time. I don't particularly care for that term because it implies that it's like this sweet little stroll through a nice garden, a babbling brook, right? And everything is nice and sweet and it's so good. And there are moments that time with Jesus is that way. But you know, I gotta be honest with you, this morning when I got up, it was like throwing elbows. It was like being in close hand-to-hand combat with my heart. I was angry, I was sad, there's some things happening with my family that I can't change. And so some mornings, it's not. It's not quiet. So I always refer to my time in the Word as heart training because some days it's great and I'm strong and we conquer. And then there's some days that I just need to just slug it out. He's saying dwell on these things. Dwell on what's true. That's why you need to be in the Word. Is that the Spirit of God, Jesus tells us before he left, he says, there's a lot of things I want to teach you but you can't bear them right now. You're not strong enough. We haven't spent enough time conditioning. We've got to get there. But the, the helper, the helper that's coming, the Holy Spirit, he's going to be able to teach you all of these things. And he's going to convict people. And he's going to compel them to righteousness. And he's going to do all of these things in you. We have to be chewing on the word. Always. That's why when we get up and we read, it challenges us. You know what the, all these things that, that Paul's listed I guarantee you, if you spend time in the word, one of them is going to come up. And guess what? You have a chance to dwell on that thing for that day. To chew on it, to meditate on it, to break it apart and think about how it applies to your life. To make it a part of who you are. He's saying, chew on this. And then he says these things. This term in, uh, in the original language points us back to the whole list Right, Paul's teaching us that we are responsible for how we think. Coasting through life without being intentional about our thoughts is a very dangerous and ungodly way to live. We have to be people who live and think on purpose. 
That means that we make a conscious effort to be who God has called us to be. Holiness is not an accidental thing. It is something that takes effort and focus and humility. We have to be servants of God. Okay, so now if we've set our mind, if we set our thoughts, how do we actually put this into practice? Paul gives us a couple of things here. Check this out in verse 9. He says, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. So he says first, there's four things here that we're going to go, that we're going to talk about. He says first, what you have learned. This means to increase in knowledge. Paul tells them to put what they've learned into practice. This is the actual application of information, what you've learned. And then he says, what you've received. This means to apply this, act, this verb right here actually is connected to the idea of being married. So when a, husband, when a man joins a woman in marriage, they become one flesh, right? They are not two separate people anymore. They are one in God's eyes. He's saying, I want you to take what you have learned and received. In other words, I'm going to take information and I'm going to make it indistinguishable from the rest of myself. If I'm, going to be li- if I'm going to live according to these things, what's morally excellent, what's true, what's just, what's lovely, what's commendable, I'm going to learn it intellectually and I'm going to ingrain it in my soul so that when people see me, this is not an extra add-on that I put onto my life. This is a natural expression of who I am. He's saying what you've learned and what you've applied, check this out, what you've heard, Another word for this is how to understand. This is to to perceive the sense of what is said. Now think about this. So if you're in a classroom, right, and your instructor teaches you something, you take the knowledge, you got a test coming up, you cram the knowledge in your head, right? It's like, oh, I've got to have the right answer when I get to this test, right? So I cram the information in my head. So I've learned it. So now I'm going to apply it. I don't know how this works, but I'm going to do this math problem on this piece of paper. All I know is this letter goes here, this number goes here, and then I'm just going to kind of work this out. He said, okay, now you've applied it, but then there comes the day when you actually understand it. And it's not just a process. It's actually a natural part of who you are. So what he's saying is that the first, the download that you had, the information, the application, how it became a part of you, now you can do it. But then there comes a point to where you understand. And it's like, okay, game change. Because now all of a sudden, I'm not just processing words. Now all of a sudden, I'm not just processing somebody else's idea. I actually know that this is true. And this leads to the next part, which is the coolest part. What you have seen. This means to be, become acquainted with by experience. What he's doing is he's saying, look, the four-part process, I learn it, I apply it, I understand it, and now I experience it. What happens is that God has invited us to be people of unity, to focus on these things, and what first starts out as an intellectual idea, some sort of a truth is downloaded in me, I kind of know it in my head, but then it sinks into my heart, and then it comes out of my hands. I start with a heart, it's a, a head that's obedient that leads to a heart that is changed. 
that comes out to hands that serve, that create habits in my life. This is what he's talking about, the four-stage process. The model for us to be unifiers is simple, that we learn, apply, understand, and experience. At each step, the enemy is going to try to knock us off our game. Think about this. He's going to say, oh, you've already learned that. You don't need to apply it. You're good. Love other people. That's great. Second greatest commandment. Love God, love people. You're good. Well, no, I want to understand it. Okay, that's great. You understand it. You've had some experiences. Perfectly fine. We don't need to go any further than this. Oh, wait, no, I want to actually live it out. Oh, well, no, we've, we should be satisfied with where we've been, what we've done. All parts of this, all, all the parts of the way, he's going to try to knock you off your game. But we got to be intentional about how we apply truth. Okay, the last part here. I know we're about done. In verse 9, he says, Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me. And look at the promise here. And the God of peace will be with you. Okay, let me see if I can unpack this real quick. He's not talking about peace with other people. He's not talking about internal peace. He's not talking about peace within yourself. He's talking about peace with God. He's talking about a pure heart. He's talking about a heart that is not at war with God. James describes a heart that is, that is uh, jealous for you. God, God if you, you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. It doesn't work that way. Right? He says you're, you're on one side or the other. And he says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? What he's saying here is that if we apply ourselves to these things, not only are we going to have, we're going to have unity with other people. And even though there will be tension and there will be, there will be contention with other people, even though there's going to be moments when I am not satisfied with who I am and in my humanity, I grow fearful and ashamed and I grow uh, nervous and scared. What he's saying is that in spite of all of those things, you will have peace with God. And what that does is that transforms your mindset to where all the other contention, you know what you respond with, is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. The key to being a unified person, to living in a unified way, is to dwell on these things, to focus on these things, to be this kind of a person. We have an opportunity to live this out. There are all kinds of ways that our generation can teach the world about unity. But we can't do that if we abandon the truth. We can't do that if we don't train our hearts. We can't do that if we don't spend time in the word. And so we need to make sure that this is a priority for us. Our heart, our thoughts, they will determine the direction of our lives. So I want to ask you, what are you pointing your life at? What are you making a conscious decision to dwell on? Is it a job? Is it a degree? Is it a relationship? Is it status? Is it a social media following? What are you setting your mind towards? In the quiet moments of your heart, what do you dwell on? How are you living on purpose? Are you focusing on those things? Or are you focusing on what is true, what's honorable or just or pure or morally excellent? 
Um, I actually have something I want to give you guys. Sam, would you pass these out for me? Um, so if you've never seen these, this is for your Bible. If you already have one, give this to another person. So I need to change this because this says quiet time tools. It really isn't a quiet. These are heart training tools, right? So if we're supposed to be people who live and train and focus on these things, that means that, means that we need to spend time in the truth. This is a bookmark for your Bible. It also is an underliner uh, as well, a ruler. But on one side, this is the STAR acronym. This is the, the there's different ways that you can do this. Uh, people use different acronyms. But if you've never journaled before, um, this is a great roadmap for you to follow. You start out with the scripture that you read. As you've read a giant block of scripture, a lot of people will read the proverb of the day. So today is the 26th. Today we'd read Proverbs 26. It's a great place to start to know God's truth. The, the start with the scripture and then the, the, uh, the thought conveyed. What does the scripture actually mean? Not what does it say, but what does it mean? Right? Because you're thinking about context, application, how does it actually apply to your life? And then the response, write a letter to God. This is something that will help you chew on the same passage of scripture four times. Right? You write it down, you copy it, the scripture, then you copy out the meaning. That's the second time you think about the verse. Remember, we're chewing on this, we're dwelling on this. The application, and then the thought conveyed. On the back of this is a roadmap for praying. If you guys have ever seen this, this is called the ACTS acronym. Right? You start with adoration. Remember, we start with who God is. Who God is. You say, God, reveal yourself to me. Show me something new about you. Because I want you to be the focus of my conversation. I'm not going to come to you with my list of wants and things that I need, to take, need you to take care of. Show me you first. And then, after we're done with that, then we go to confession. Because we're going to see God for who he is. We've got to pray biblically. And then we need to thank God for who he is. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Then supplication is at the end. I want to encourage you guys in this, that as we look at this year and what God is going to do within the community at Reach and within uh, your friendships. If you can do anything, set your mind on the word. I know many of you have heard that since you were in diapers in church, but it's true. Focus on what is true. Live by what is true and not just what you feel. What's up, everybody? This is Philip Jackson, pastor of young adults at Evergreen Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday evening at 6.30 at Evergreen Church, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. For more information, check out our website, reachtulsa.org. You can connect with us on social media and on Instagram by searching for reach.tulsa. Also, be sure to subscribe to our content for the latest sermons and updates. You can also find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah,